Hello, I'm Anthony Day. Welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 21st of May 2021 and a special welcome to new silver supporter Adrian Bond. Adrian, many thanks for your support and I hope you continue to find things of interest in the Sustainable Futures Report. I'm always pleased to welcome new patrons. If you'd like to take part, just go to patreon.com slash sfr, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash sfr. This week, Fatih Birol, a leading energy economist and currently executive director of the International Energy Agency, said that exploitation and development of new oil and gas fields must stop this year and no new coal-fired power stations could be built if the world were to stay within safe limits of global heating and meet the goal of net zero emissions by 2050. Meeting net zero is one target, but meeting increasing energy demands is another. How do we do this without fossil fuels? Is there a role for nuclear power to make up the shortfall? Recently, I met with three experts to discuss this point. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Sustainable Futures Report, which takes the form of a discussion. I'd like to introduce our panellists, who are Sarah Cullen, Ashley Cooper and Robin Whitlock. So first of all, I'll ask them to introduce themselves. Sarah, welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, my name is Sarah Cullen. I'm the co-founder of a group called 18 Free Zero. It's an Irish clean energy advocacy group. Um, currently, there are two effective bans on nuclear power development in Ireland, and we'd like to get these removed so it can be assessed on equal footing with other clean energy technologies. My background is in energy systems engineering and physics, and I've worked in solar farm development in Ireland and also in training in the nuclear sector. Thank you. Ashley Cooper. Hi, um, I'm an environmental photographer. I've spent the last 16 years traveling to every continent on the planet to document the impacts of climate change and the rise of renewable energy. And I run the world's only dedicated climate change photo agency, globalwarmingimages.net. Thank you. And Robin Whitlock. Hi there. Um, yeah, so I'm a uh, freelance journalist. I specialise in climate change and renewable energy. And uh, within that, um, I'm also a correspondent for Renewable Energy magazine, which is a kind of a web based version of a Spanish paper magazine, basically, which deals um, with global renewable energy technologies, uh, excluding nuclear. Um, but I also write for various other um, publications as well, um, and also on other subjects from time to time, particularly transport. Thank you. Energy is central to the climate change debate. We're going to need more of it as the population grows, and in particular as the middle class and middle class expectations grow. Within that, we will see a disproportionate demand for electricity as we electrify the transport fleet and as we move away from fossil fuels such as gas for heating homes and buildings. If that electricity is generated from coal and gas, we'll achieve nothing. 
and will probably make the situation worse. So we need a zero carbon generation mix. What role will nuclear power play in that? Sarah, would you like to open the discussion? Yes, thanks. So jumping off what you said about um, middle-class aspirations, before that, there's a very strong link between energy consumption and human development. Up to about 100 gigajoules per capita consumption, which is a level of energy consumption yet to be reached by 80% of the world's population, a country can fundamentally enhance the health, educational standards, and general well-being of its population by consuming more energy. Therefore, we need to increase energies to improve quality of life for the majority of the world. And however, we're also in a climate emergency and energy systems are a major driver of climate change, specifically dirty electricity systems, which are overwhelmingly fossil fuels. At present, over 80% of primary energy consumption is from the burning of oil, gas and coal. Included in this energy mix is electricity, which internationally is about two thirds fossil fuels. Fossil fuels also produce harmful wastes, such as airborne pollutants, which kill about 7 million people every year. Additionally, in developed nations where improving human development is maybe a lesser concern, the rapid expansion of electricity systems, as you said, is critical to decarbonize energy sectors such as heat and transport through electrification. So we need reliable electricity that doesn't destroy the environment, both to replace the old fossil fuel units and to meet increased uh, demand for electricity globally. And despite strong support for and growth in low carbon energy sources in recent years, the fossil fuel contribution to power generation has remained virtually unchanged since the early 2000s. But there is good news. We have the technologies now to replace fossil fuels and to mitigate the catastrophic consequences of climate change in a socially just manner. Developed nations especially have the potential to almost eliminate carbon emissions from the grid. And some countries have come so close like Sweden and Switzerland. However, there are technical limits that will exist in one country and won't exist elsewhere. And there's no real one size fits all approach for which electricity technologies should and could replace fossil fuels in the electricity mix. It's clear that we need to use all clean energy technologies available to us. And the current major technology options for that are wind, solar, geothermal, hydro and nuclear. I advocate for all of these. Nuclear power is a low carbon form of electricity generation with lower associated carbon emissions than solar power. It's really safe, even accounting for accidents, it is the best safety record of any major form of electricity generation. Nuclear power also doesn't emit harmful pollutants or waste products to the environment. All wastes are accounted for unlike any other form of electricity generation. It's a well-established mature technology and civil nuclear power can now boast more than 18,000 years of reactor experience and nuclear power plants are operational in 31 countries worldwide, providing about 10% of global electricity. Beyond that, many more countries depend in part on nuclear generated power. Italy and Denmark, for example, get almost 10% of their electricity from imported nuclear power. Ireland also imports nuclear power from the UK. The International Panel on Climate Change's landmark report on limiting the rise in global temperatures this century to 1.5 degrees outlines various scenarios to achieve that target. All scenarios involve substantially increasing the share of nuclear in the energy mix. Nuclear and renewables are not in competition. All available clean energy technologies are needed at a global level to avoid the worst effects of climate change in a socially just manner, and we cannot afford to wait for potential new technologies. We have to act now with what we have. Thank you very much. Ashley, how would you respond to that? 
Well, um, it's interesting because until um, until sort of climate change reared its ugly head, you know, the vast majority of the, the world's environmentalists were were you know radically opposed to nuclear, and there are now some that propose that nuclear is you know, part of the solution to tackling climate change with you know uh, electricity to be generated in in what is seen as sort of low carbon ways um my problem with nuclear really is that first of all it is impossible uh, to build new nuclear power stations in the time that we have left to tackle the climate emergency we need to be doing something way more quicker to decarbonize our energy systems than is ever going to be possible under nuclear. Uh, you only have to look at uh, EDF's lamentable um, sort of track record in trying to get nuclear power, new nuclear power um, into the grid. Uh, there are two uh, stations that they're building, Flamanville in France and some unpronounceable place in, in Finland. I mean, both of these places, um, you know, are years and years and years behind schedule um, and way, way, way over budget. In the case of Flamanville, it's something like six times um, over budget. So they just can't get the technology up and running in the time that we have left to tackle the climate emergency. Um, it's a hideously uh, expensive technology. Uh, they're incredibly expensive to build. Flamanville, for instance, CDF said they would bring it online for three, three billion uh, euros. They're currently at about 19 billion euros and, and still rising. So it's very, very expensive. Uh, and actually dealing with the legacy uh, of nuclear uh, is also tremendously expensive. If you look at the government's own figures, on the costs of just the UK dealing with the nuclear legacy. Um, it is costing the UK taxpayer more than enough money to put solar panels, a four kilowatt solar panel system on every single one of the 28 million households in the UK. Um, nuclear has obvious um, problems with uh, safety track records. You know, we, none of us need to start naming power stations that have had problems there, uh, but you know, it does have a safety track record. Um, if you actually factor in the amount of steel and cement used in the construction of new nuclear power stations, it isn't actually that low carbon. And it, it is not a renewable tech. It is not a renewable technology because the amounts of plutonium are finite. Uh, mining it is dangerous, and we will run out of it at some point. Uh, and I guess my last uh, problem with nuclear is that currently uh, some of the new nuclear power stations that are being built, and quite a lot around the world, um, are very close to sea level and incre incredibly vulnerable um, to sea level rise. And we've all seen what happens uh, when you mix a nuclear power station with seawater in Japan. Um, so uh, for all those reasons, I, I am not a fan of nuclear power. Thank you very much, Ashley. Sarah, I'm sure you want to come back on a number of those points. But before you do, uh, let me ask Robin, what's your take on the uh, situation? OK, well, the arguments I'm going to uh, advance basically stem from an article I wrote in uh, Fair Planet magazine in 2016. Um, I haven't really 
done much of a sort of like an update since then, but there's lots that Ashley said, which uh, vibe with me as well. So the that article in Fair Planet, basically substantial parts of that article kind of um, dismissed some of the claims uh, being made by nuclear supporters um, that things like fast breeder reactors and thorium would basically succeed where pressurized water reactors um, uh, haven't really. Um, and there's problems with both, both of those. Um, neither are fast breeders or thorium plants have been uh, commercially successful. They're not commercially viable yet. Um, fast breeders in particular, they, are, they, they utilize sodium as a coolant um, which is potentially dangerous if it leaks because it can cause sodium fires, which are horrendously difficult to put out. So, uh, so I'm going to start with, by basically firmly dismissing those two particular technologies. Then we're left with pressurized water reactors, and kind of the the salutary lesson for me on this has been Hinkley C, which. Um, uh, basically uh, provides a classic example of the downsides of nuclear um, and particularly pressurized water reactors. Um, it's been ridiculously expensive to construct, subject to continual delays. Um, the, the costs are, are rising. Uh, the projected date, start date has been put back continuously. Ah, the cited cost at the moment, um, if it hasn't changed much since 2016, £92.50 per megawatt hour over a 35 year period, which is basically twice the electricity price um, in 2016. Um, I'm not sure how much that's changed, but I wouldn't have expected it to change much. Um, there's been a whole host of energy analysts and figures in the media and um, in economic bodies that have, have regularly described the Hinkley C project as one of the worst deals ever signed by the British government. Uh, and as Ashley says, um, nuclear plants in general take a long time to develop, much more so than um, renewable energy plants. So. Uh, really, it seems to me that if we're going to get a decarbonized society up and running in time, then the best bet is to um, plow on and uh, and deploy renewable energy technology, truly renewable energy technology, uh, renewable energy technology. So wind, solar, geothermal, ocean energy, but also backed with a kind of um, modification of the grid, supported by storage, smart energy, perhaps some demand reduction, all that kind of stuff in there. And that seems to me to be the, the best way forward. Sarah, I'm sure you'd like to come back on some of those points. So please, what are your thoughts? Um, I guess, Ashley, what did you consider to be the most pressing point of like, so we can, we have some time, so we can discuss all of them, I imagine. What would you like to talk about? Um, I think for me, the, the, the time it takes to develop new nuclear power stations and the cost, you know, it's the most expensive way of generating electricity man has ever invented. And, and that's before you factor in 
you know, the long-term costs, um, sorry, man or woman, um, before you factor in the long-term costs um, of, of dealing uh, actually with um, the spent nuclear fuel. And to date, um, both the US government and the UK government have not found a long-term solution for safely dealing um, with the radioactive waste from nuclear power plants. I mean, certainly my, you know, I sit on the doorstep of Sellafield and a lot of the nuclear waste from not just Sellafield, but other power stations is, is held there um, in, 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 in ponds. And, you know, can we just address the cost thing first? Yeah, sure. Because we sure. can get to all of them, but yeah. yeah, sure. yeah um, so first of all, obviously it's not true. It's the most expensive form of electricity. If, if you want like a fusion, it takes more energy in than it puts out. So off the bat, there's there are plenty more. I will say, so I kind of come from a technical background and I know that for a lot of people, when they see these kind of price comparisons, they take it as this, technical or you know specific way of looking at costs what usually you see and robin you referred to some prices when you were talking as well that's mm -hmm. a thing called the levelized cost of electricity mm -hmm. and what it does is it takes all the costs of associated with generating a unit of electricity and then divides it or you know by producing how much electricity the plant's going to put out and then divides it by how much electricity the plant does put out, and then you find the cost per unit of electricity. And you can use that as a way to kind of compare different forms of electricity generation. Mm -hmm. this, isn't a, this isn't how plants actually do get paid. And there are all sorts of different market structures for how plants get their money back. Um, the levelized cost of electricity is kind of a political um, number like a way for people outside the industry to kind of grasp the relative scales of them and it does have a good place in policy making definitely something that the levelized cost of electricity doesn't capture in most countries and certainly not in ireland i don't think anywhere in europe is the cost of the transmission system so you can say that nuclear costs a lot of money to build your reactor up front but it doesn't need massive expansion to the grid in the way that renewables does. And nuclear fully accounts for these costs and fully accounts for the waste cost within what appears to be a very high levelized cost of electricity. That is all of the waste costs completely um, taken account of. Whereas industries like fossil fuel power generation just pump their waste into the atmosphere and don't pay for it. And where then we end up paying for that is through our healthcare and through the mortality rates and through damage to the environment. So actually, when you look at the costs of running other forms of electricity through levelized cost of electricity, you're not seeing the actual cost of running them. Whereas with nuclear, you are seeing the actual cost of running them. But that's just an explanation of the levelized cost of electricity. I mean, any infrastructure project can go overboard. And I'm not British, so I don't really follow what's happening with Team 3.C, but I think it's a bit of a head wreck. We in Ireland, we have a project. Um, there's a massive construction project um, to do with the children's hospital that's gone way over budget, years <laughs> behind where it should be. This can happen with any infrastructure project and it's not unique to nuclear. And in fact, there are plenty of nuclear examples that are ahead of um, schedule and ahead of budget. So last year, a plant in Tianwan came online in China um, that took five years to construct. 
Um, Hink and for comparison, Hinkley Point C is two reactors. This was one reactor, but similar size. So similar output to one of those reactors. So it's not that it's a different technology and that's why. And then if you think that maybe China just pushes it through without regulation, which I know a lot of people are skeptical of with China, one of the kind of poster childs for nuclear construction, it was in the 90s in Japan, it was called the Kashiwakazi Kariwa six, unit number six, took three years to construct and again, similar size unit. So the cost and the construction times, that's an infrastructure issue and some countries deal with that better than others. I know in Europe, there's been lots of issues with it, and a lot of it's to do with how they're regulated and how construction carries on. And that's nothing to do with nuclear as a technology and is kind, kind of just makes the debate and a little bit more opaque. But yeah. But even, you know, even France's own energy minister, Cole Flamanville, quoted, said it was a mess in terms of a construction. Yeah, the Irish Children's Hospital construction is a mess, but we definitely should have more children's hospitals. Yeah, yeah, that, that, I don't disagree on the children's hospitals, I disagree on the nuclear. I, oh yeah, but, but that it's an infrastructure issue, it's a construction yeah. issue, it's nothing inherent to nuclear power. But, but the, the other problem you're dealing with is it doesn't matter what how you look at it, all independent observers essentially say that EDF is bankrupt as a company. The only way it's still going is because it is continually bankrolled by the French taxpayer. You know, under any way that any economists look at companies, EDF is a bankrupt company. Yeah, plenty of companies go bankrupt all the time. And I think instead of looking at an individual company, what I think uh, kind of explains uh, why we might want nuclear, even from an economic point of view worldwide, and is a much more compelling case, is that it is currently 10% of power worldwide. An extra 50, so that's about 440 reactors. An extra 50 reactors are under construction, and especially in countries where they need rapid expansion of clean electricity. So like China is big, you know, big market for them at the moment, places like India. Um, the those governments wouldn't be building those if they were at ridiculous cost. I mean, they still build coal plants. They, they build all sorts of plants because they recognize they need to lift people out of energy poverty. They take into account, we need a mix of everything and we need to use all the resources that we have. They believe that nuclear is a good return on their limited resources while they're desperately trying to lift people out of energy poverty. If they're choosing nuclear, as a way to go about doing that. That's a very compelling case. And you can compare it to the finances of an individual company in a different market structure. And you can start talking about the different market structures available, but ultimately that's not the technology itself. Nuclear is getting built worldwide because it makes sense to build nuclear worldwide. It's not an argument against the technology of nuclear. Yeah. So you're saying that uh, things can be built far more quickly than the rather disastrous examples at Flamanville and Hinkley C. Yeah, so the yeah. plants that but I what, just what I, what I wanted to do was to ask uh, Robin, have you come across the idea of the neighbourhood nuclear parts, the, the modularised nuclear uh, generators? Uh, um, is there a place for something like that? Well, actually, I, well, I was thinking of opening my contribution to this debate by saying that um, my opposition to nuclear is based pretty much on what I've seen so far 
of the various problems. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm coming from a sort of an ideological position. So for that reason, um, I would still be fairly in favour of fusion if it ever got developed. And um, uh, at the moment, it doesn't look like it's going to be for quite a long time. So at the moment, that's out. But the modular thing looks quite interesting. Um, unfortunately, I haven't really had the time to kind of um, update myself on what's going on with that. But um, that's something I do intend to do. So potentially, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'd have to have a look at it and see, see what's involved. Robin, I can send you a brilliant report on Irish nuclear development that looks into these reactors. Mm. Although I'm a little bit biased, I did write it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, by all means do, yes, and I'll certainly have a look at it, yeah. Can you make that available so we can share it with the listeners of the Sustainable Futures Report? I will indeed, yeah. Thank you very much, thank you. Ashley, clearly you have serious doubts, uh, if not outright opposition, to nuclear, but the race is on. We need to decarbonize our electricity at the same time as expanding, increasing our electricity. If we say no to nuclear, how are we going to achieve that objective? Uh, well, certainly, you know, people with far brighter minds than I have, have done the maths and, 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 and have quite, you know, come to the quite simple conclusion that, you know, we can power certainly the whole of the UK from renewable energy. Uh, it will take a lot of investment, then, but then it takes, you know, any power infrastructure is going to take investment. Um, but we, we know that we can power the whole of the UK uh, by renewable energy. The other thing I think we need to start talking about as well, that, you know, everybody just assumes that we're going to have access to limitless amounts of power, or we should have. Um, you know, we should be looking now at huge projects on, you know, saving energy, because in the UK and many countries in the world, we waste vast quantities of energy. So we need to look at, um, we need to look at saving energy. I mean, I, I documented um, a few years ago now, a brilliant project on the Isle of Egg uh, in Scotland. It's off grid. All the households there used to use uh, noisy, dirty, polluting, expensive uh, diesel generators to generate their electricity. Um, they invested um, quite small sums of money in uh, two small scale hydro plants, in a small scale wind farm uh, and in some solar panels. And now something like 95% of all the island's electricity is generated from renewables. But how they control it is that they only allow um, each household to use up to five kilowatt hours of electricity at a time. If they use more than that, uh, it flicks the switch in their household and cuts their electric off. Electric off, and then they have to, you know, pay a fee to the egg electric company to go and put them back on again. But what that does is it limits the amount that any household can use at any one time. And when I spoke to those householders and said, well, you know, does this not put you at disadvantage? They said, no, we have all the products that anybody would expect in their house. You know, the, the electric dishwasher, the washing machine, the Hoover, you know, you name it. But they said, we just know that we can't put every single device on at the same time. 
And we have become so used to just using energy whenever we want, however much we want, all at one go. Uh, we need to become smarter about how we use it. And we need to get energy efficiency programs in place that mean actually we don't need to be generating the amount of electricity that people are predicting that we do. Um, and if we have a massive investment in renewables and a massive investment um, in energy saving, uh, then I truly believe that, you know, that is the way forward. And I, you know, I would also argue I, I, I really wouldn't call nuclear a, a clean technology because certainly mining plutonium isn't clean uh, and trying to deal with, you know, tens of thousands of years of radioactive waste isn't clean either. Um, so for me, it's got to be renewable um, and we need to have both investment uh, in the infrastructure and investment in energy savings. Right, so we're going to close the gap to a large extent then by managing demand. Now, one of the major users or potential major users is transport, uh, the uh, EVs. Uh, Robin, you said you write and research on transport. Does it make sense that we simply change all our cars and all our freight trucks to electric vehicles? Because just doing that will not stop congestion. Uh, it will put tremendous strain on the infrastructure. And while you can say that EVs are clean, the answer is yes, up to a certain point. Mm. Because after all, a tremendous amount of pollution, particularly particulate pollution, comes from brakes and tyres. And EVs have them too. Mm -hmm. So is there a potential? Are we going to see a, a, a revolution in transport? I mean, given that people have extremely expensive cars sitting outside doing nothing for 95% of the time on average, is this time for a radical change, which will not only save the uh, electricity involved in running these vehicles around the place, but all the energy and power in actually manufacturing them? Um. Yes, I, th I think you're right that uh, there's quite a few people out there who are basically thinking of EVs as some kind of golden solution. And uh, as you say, they're, they're not going to be. What we need to do really as much as possible is also achieve modal shift. So basically that means kind of trying as much as possible to move people uh, away from, um, well, certainly short haul flying, um, which is kind of a popular method of trying to get up to the, the north of England quickly, um, but also uh, cars as well. So to do that, we need to actually improve our public transport. Um, um, and by that, I mean both, both buses and coaches, and more importantly, the railways. And this is very topical at the moment because there's a lot of controversy about HS2 in particular. Uh, right, <laughs> so, HS2, I'm going to basically digress and go on to that a bit because it is actually important. If we're going to have a sustainable public transport system, rail is vital um, in playing a part of that. Um, and that means we need a fully effective national rail network. And the problem for um, quite a few years now is that uh, the existing railway network has been full, completely full to capacity with both the East Coast Main Line and the West Coast Main Line uh, at capacity, um, resulting in all sorts of things, train breakdowns, delays and all that kind of thing. So the point behind HS2 is to basically take all the um, 
north to south um, fast express trains off the East Coast Main Line and the West Coast Main Line, thereby freeing space on both those lines for um, slower, more local, more regional stopping trains. Um, and that in turn, in combination with building more sort of um, branch lines and, and smaller lines will generate the capacity need and rejuvenate the rail network. And hopefully that in turn will succeed in moving more people off cars and onto public transport. But it needs to happen in combination with the total revolution in bus services as well. So this is actually why um, the government, current government's attempt to um, rejuvenate the bus sector uh, through the government have actually recently published this national bus strategy, which is really interesting and has great potential. So if that works, that will also help. So where does that leave EVs? Well, basically EVs really should be kind of a stopgap for those people who for one reason or another can't use public transport um, or who stubbornly refuse to. Um, so it, it, it should really play a minor role. And uh, so I agree, I, I don't think it's wise to kind of just suddenly just flip over from fossil fuel transport, uh, fossil fuel cars over to EVs. That's, that's not by itself going to work. Thank you very much. Uh, just, uh, I, I could debate with you at length uh, the uh, sense or not of HS2, but sadly we haven't got time for that on this occasion, but maybe we'll do it another time. But I'd just like to ask uh, uh, Sarah, first of all, we haven't spoken about hydrogen. A number of people talk about hydrogen in the energy mix. Do you see that as um, an avenue we should be exploring? Absolutely. I mean, I keep saying, I think we should use every technology that we have. Cutting any out is just going to limit us. And ultimately, we're going to suffer then if we limit any. With hydrogen, there's a lot of really exciting scope for applications in industry and in transport. What is a little bit concerning about hydrogen at the moment is that idea of green hydrogen in Europe, where you build these massive, expensive plants and wait until there's some surplus wind. Uh, which might not happen for weeks and you're supposed to run your industry based on this mm. what i think would make a lot more sense was would be if you have constant baseload power uh, powering an electrolyzer and you could even use waste heat and um, from a low carbon energy source that has waste heat an, ex an excellent one of those is obviously nuclear which provides baseload power and has lots of excess heat um, it's just another way that nuclear can kind of help with the deep decarbonization of the grid, but any excess renewables do feed into it as well. I think it's just a little bit foolish when you look around Europe and you see plans based on that, because ultimately the shortfall is going to be made up for with fossil fuels. And is that really any better than to burn fossil fuels to get hydrogen than just burn them in the first place? Mm. Any thoughts on that, Ashley? Um, yeah, hydrogen is definitely uh, you know, a fuel of the future. Um, I've documented cases in Iceland where the Icelandic government hoped to get their entire fishing fleet onto hydrogen fairly shortly, as well as all their vehicles. Um, I've photographed um, the council vehicles in Orkney, quite a few of which now run um, on hydrogen, which is uh, created from some of their renewable energy plants that they've got around the Orkney Islands. So yeah, it's, it's definitely 
a fuel to uh, to be looking out for for the future. And I think myself, it has more potential than trying to go down the EV road um, with vehicles because you've got the problem of you know, having to mine a lot of rare earths for batteries for EVs, as well as obviously um, all the electricity generation. So I, I think, you know, hydrogen de definitely has a future. Yes, okay, but of course, um all cars these days have got a tremendous amount of electronics, whatever the power source. Um, and resources, I think, are probably beyond the scope of this discussion, but uh, resources are going to be a limiting factor, particularly the rare earths that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So I don't know where we go from there. Um, Robin, as a, a, a transport journalist, have you driven the Toyota Mirai, which is their hydrogen car? It looks extremely nice, but... Uh, since there are only six filling stations in the country, in of UK, there is not a lot of um, practicality there. Um, uh, well, actually, I I haven't driven for some years. I don't I don't drive at all. <laughs> um, I I basically use public transport and my bicycle, and that that's about it. Um, uh, picking up on this point about hydrogen, though, Sarah's right, actually. Um, you know, if we if if we're going to go down the hydrogen route, there needs to be green hydrogen, and and that is uh, problematic because of the the cost and and the effort required to basically produce it from an electrolysis. So it requires that we have enough renewable energy infrastructure in place first of all. Um, probably the way forward there is to. Um, I'm thinking advance the marine energy sector because that seems like a pretty good way of generating large amounts of um, unpredictable actually um, renewable energy which can then be sort of fed into electrolyzers to produce hydrogen. Um, I, I, I would say what's most likely to happen with vehicles is, is going to be a sort of a mix, mostly EVs, but with some hydrogen and bioenergy um, vehicles in there as well. At the moment, I think that's probably the most, uh, most likely scenario. Thank you. Well, so far we appear to have two members of the panel who are adamant that nuclear has not got a future in our energy mix and our remaining panelist disagrees. So where do we go from here? And I have to say that if you look at Hinkley C and you look at Flamanville, both of which are disasters, you look at the plan to build a power station near Sellafield and another one at Wilfer in North Wales. And I think it was Hitachi and was it Toyota, the other ones? Uh, they both withdrew and one of those companies decided to close its nuclear construction facility altogether. So while there may be a lot of nuclear uh, development in China, and it may be very successful and it may be safe, the experience in Europe, I think, particularly when you look at Germany, which has banned all more nuclear or all additional nuclear power, the situation in Europe looks as though it just won't happen. But how do you see that? Um, well, you shouldn't use Germany as an example, because if you use them, then you're advocating for increased use of coal, which uh, for the Sustainable Futures Report doesn't have great credentials. Um, I, I can only look at it as there are 
two projects that people are discussing as being um, over budget over time, um, where there are currently 50 reactors under construction worldwide. I just talked about China as being one that's there's particularly high growth there because, you know, the it ties in more with my interest of list, lifting people out of energy poverty. Um, but, you know, they're they're being deployed all over the world. Um, and there, I don't see, there's no technical reason why Europe can't do it either. And if we keep looking at nuclear through this very negative lens of, oh, it'll probably be too expensive, then what you see is higher cost of lending to people developing nuclear and then companies going, you know what, it's actually not worth it being discriminated against in terms of pricing, uh, not receiving the subsidies that renewables are receiving, having all market indicators go against us for no good technical reason. Maybe it's better to just build fossil fuels. Um, we need to kind of keep that in mind with the nuclear debate or debate. It's we're not fighting against renewables. We're not displacing clean energy. When we put barriers in place to developing nuclear, fossil fuels get built. Can I so, just, sorry. Yeah, Robin, yes. Can I just ask you, Sarah, what um, technology those other countries outside Europe are using? Are, are we talking about? PWRs or some other technology? Some of them are PWRs. There's a reactor database, the World Nuclear Association is like the trade body for it. They have a reactor database and you can click through and see all the ones that are being built. Mm. Um, but which I'll send a link onto that as well. Um, the There's small amount of construction of these small modular reactors. So I know you probably have yeah, heard about um, the development of those in the US, I think in the next few years. And the UK actually, I think like two days ago, the UK Office for Nuclear Regulation and uh, made an announcement about beginning licensing processes for the small module reactors. So hopefully a lot of them are the big that currently being developed are the big traditional plants, which are needed in developing countries, especially to get up your ramp up your electricity output. But the small module reactors um, are hopefully going to get built more in future years, which serve a kind of different um, purpose in a way of having more flexible electricity output. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. I think um, we, yeah, Ashley, sorry. Can you just uh, look at the issue of um, the waste from nuclear power plants for a minute, because the cellar field that's just down the road from me uh, holds a lot of the UK's um, sort of nuclear waste. Now, now most of that is he held in ponds, um, uh, my understanding is that um, biological activity in the waters of these holding ponds is not a good idea. Now, Sellafield recently invited a microbiologist to go along and, and look at these ponds to tell Sellafield whether there was biological activity taking place or not. And when the microbiologist turned up, he stood on the edge of the pond, looked in and said, yep, you've got biological activity there. And the site manager at Sellafield said, oh, well, do you not need to take samples and take them back to your lab and look at them under the microscope? And he said, no. He said, why not? He said, because you've got fish swimming down there. Well, that doesn't <laughs> really give me a lot of confidence uh, that the people that are running these plants really know how to deal with this safely. And given that both the US government and the UK government still do not have a long-term plan for the safe storage of nuclear waste. I'd be really interested to hear, Sarah, what your view is on what, what should happen 
you know, to, uh, to I think your information's place. quite a bit out of date there on that they don't have a long-term plan. There's a pilot facility for deep geologic repositories licensed in the US and I think is is either active or under construction. There's ones under construction in Europe, um, Finland and Sweden uh, are looking at a joint venture. I visited um, a test facility in the Alps for deep geologic repository. It's just not true that people don't know what to do with the waste. So I think it's interesting when you talk about the waste to start thinking about what the waste is. And I think a lot of people don't really understand um, because we're, we're shown these I like oil drums full of like liquids strewn around um, the countryside. Whenever you Google nuclear waste, that's certainly what comes up. And I know a lot of people have a kind of weird image in their head of what it is. Nuclear waste, there's three types of nuclear waste. There's low level nuclear waste, intermediate and high level. Low, low level nuclear waste is produced routinely from like dentistry and medical imaging and all and industry and like loads of places. And it's 90% of the waste that comes out of a nuclear power plant as well. And there's well-established waste streams for the disposal of that and for the safe management of that. Uh, intermediate uh, level waste is about 7% and it largely comes from like the or, yeah the demolition of nuclear plants and it's like irradiated uh, components and sludges. And then what most people think of as being nuclear waste is high level nuclear waste. And this it's categorized as high level nuclear waste when it's producing heat kind of at a rate that really needs to be monitored and really needs to be taken care of. So this is about 3% of the total waste, and of that, about 95% can be reprocessed and recycled. The actual waste produce, high-level waste produced for one person's annual use of uh, nuclear power, all their electricity needs, is about a brick, uh, a brick size. And you can look, if you Google, um, there's a great picture of the Swiss, all Swiss high-level nuclear waste in this one hall. It's stored in dried cast. So it's they're stored in ponds for the first 10 years, usually on site, um, like you said. And then they're moved pretty much everywhere. There's some places where they do wet storage, pretty much everywhere now does dry storage casks for about 50 years. The point of this is to get the heat level to drop. Um, to a point where you can put it uh, underground and you can dispose of it kind of long term. The because the you know nuclear reactors have been running for about fifty years or sixty years, uh, there hasn't been a mass, and it's such a tiny volume of waste. Uh, there isn't a, we we did a study in Ireland and we looked at if Ireland implemented nuclear power into our energy mix, um, we would need over the lifetime of the nuclear um, program, we'd need a basketball arena size area to store the waste. Um, so because it hasn't been an issue, there has never been any fatality or any major environmental release of nuclear waste ever, which is incredible for any energy source. If you look at uh, environmental releases from fossil fuel plants kill 7 million people every year, and there has never been a death from the nuclear waste. You can, it's hard to see it as an issue at all, really. Um, so why governments, are, you know, you'll find no proponents for the fossil fuel industry here, I don't think. So <laughs> I don't think anybody's... Yeah, but the um, thing is, when, we, when you talk against nuclear and say it's this big issue, what it does is prevents nuclear plants from getting built. And what fills the space is fossil fuels. It's not renewables. 
yeah, we, because yeah. they provide different services. Renewables. We can choose to put our money into renewables. Should, should so be- this kind of comes back to an earlier point that you had of renewables at any cost. And you said some people had done some calculations and they thought that theoretically it would be possible to power the UK on renewables at a very high cost. Technically, that's not possible at the moment because if it's not sunny and it's not windy, you need massive amounts of storage to be able to provide people with electricity. There's weeks on end where it hasn't been windy across all of Europe. So it's not like you can just import the energy from somewhere else if it was entirely renewables. What you're talking about is having massive, massive amounts of infrastructure, way oversized energy or renewable energy systems for what your actual needs are to charge batteries, which batteries are incredibly bad for the environment, as you said yourself, um, and don't actually produce any electricity themselves, despite being massive investments. So you're looking at putting insane amounts of money into a system that's not technically feasible in the hopes of avoiding systems that are feasible and that we currently have and are safe. There's no, renewables are great and should make up a certain share of our energy needs, but there is a point where you need dispatchable baseload generation to be able to run your grid and have a secure and stable grid. And there's also, I kind of find fault with this whole idea of renewables at any price at any cost, because ultimately when you're raising the cost of electricity, you're pushing people into fuel poverty. And the people who don't mind this, like industries won't necessarily mind it so much, but you're putting vulnerable people at risk when you do that. So cost of electricity is of very high importance in the conversation. I think that that um, in, intermittency-based criticism is valid if you go down the route which is dominated by wind and solar but i would say that if if um you concentrate on fully developing a multi-technology package where different technologies cover for each other with storage in the background then that issue of base load um, becomes less of an issue and and to some extent you can also cover a certain portion proportion of that through um, anaerobic digestion may be collected from um, household food waste, which the UK hasn't really done to an extent yet. Um, and that can certainly replace, um, according to ADBA, the Anaerobic Digestion and Bioresources Association, they believe that can replace a potentially 30% of the UK's current um, imported gas. So if you add other possibly things- some of those companies which look to make money from it have put out some numbers that possibly in the future might technically be valid. That's great. But what we need now is massive amounts of electricity to decarbonize the sectors we already have and to displace the fossil fuels we're using now. We need to act now with the technologies we have and we have nuclear now. I, I agree. Um, we could we could go on and on. I, I'm really I'm really grateful that this has been proved to be such an intense debate but I I'm going to ask us all please to draw this to a close so a final thought first of all from you Robin Hmm. um okay well actually one thing I I I want to mention that I don't think has been mentioned is, is is the time issue actually there's a lot of people who have kind of been listening to groups like Extinction Rebellion who are basically putting the idea that we've only got 10 years to save the planet and 
all that kind of thing. But if you listen to climate scientists like Michael Mann and Catherine Hayhoe, um, that's actually the wrong impression. Um, what's actually uh, going on is that basically we've got 10 years to get to a point where we can avoid some pretty unpleasant things happening in 2100. So it isn't going to be like in 10 years, the equivalent of an asteroid suddenly hitting the, the earth and wiping things out. So the, the government's um, plan of steadily developing a kind of renewable energy infrastructure over um, the period to 2050 is much more realistic and, and sensible. So I, I would basically sort of be careful about that whole kind of time pressure thing that um, I feel is coming across a little in this debate. Thank you. A final thought from you, Ashley. Yeah, I mean, the insane amounts of money that Sarah talked about to me are the, the insane amounts of money that the UK government is, is spending on, on dealing with the nuclear waste issue. And by their own admission, the figures would pay to put a four kilowatt solar system on the 28 million households in the UK, which would virtually get rid of the need um, for the vast majority of power stations. It seems to me to be an absolute no brainer. And in, and in terms of Robin's point, I, I kind of disagree. I, I've seen with my own eyes, you know, that this isn't a problem for tomorrow. This is a problem that's happening now. You know, I've seen thousands and thousands of people dying around the world from climate change, whether it's they've been flooded, you know, died in floods or died in droughts, um, you know, starving to death. This is happening now. It's getting worse and worse with every single passing day. I, I wasn't advocating the day yeah. <laughs> I totally agree with you on that point. Yeah. Yeah. So finally, Sarah, you've got a, a, a hard sell, I fear. And it's very disappointing because it shouldn't be a hard sell. It's the opposition that you see a lot to nuclear. A lot of it's based on just not facts and on this kind of almost propaganda that's been going on over years. And I don't have a stake in the nuclear industry. I do have a stake in having clean air and having electricity for the future. And for me, it's crazy when we talk about trying to optimize our systems and trying to have the best energy systems that comes in a socially just manner in a way that doesn't trash our planet we rule out an entire technology and don't even consider it and certainly it won't be suitable for everywhere but there's many places where it would be suitable and would be incredibly beneficial and having conversations where people completely disregard an entire technology is absolutely unscientific and what you end up with is governments like the irish government who don't even include it in their models how can you have a good energy system when you haven't even considered all your options uh yeah it's, it's a shame it's such a hard sell because it really shouldn't be. It's an energy technology. It's been a privilege to have the three of you on this discussion this afternoon. Thank you all very much indeed. Sarah Cullen, Robin Whitlock, Ashley Cooper. Yes, thank you all again. It's been really interesting. Do you have any thoughts on this? You can comment on the website on any of the podcast clients where you find the Sustainable Futures Report or write to me direct at mail at anthony-day.com Links to the documents mentioned during the conversation are on the website which is www.sustainable.com 
sustainablefutures.report and there you will also find a link to the IEA's latest report on Zero Carbon 2050. Thanks for listening to this, one of the longest episodes to date. I'll be back next week, and I hope you will. If you have any opinions, ideas or suggestions about what the Sustainable Futures Report should cover, please get in touch. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. Until next time.